Hi everyone, I'm Blake Bartlett and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on the Build podcast, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is all about growth with a capital G. I'm sure you've seen the growing trend of growth teams, growth leaders, growth engineers, but what does that even mean? What do these mystical growth people do? Is this right for my company? These are all very good questions. I'm sure many of you have them. But thankfully, today, we're joined by the absolute expert on all this stuff, Elena Verna. Elena is the SVP of product and growth at Malwarebytes. And prior to that, she was SVP of growth at SurveyMonkey for eight years. She wrote the book on growth, and today she shares that wisdom with us. Well, Elena, thank you so much for being on the Build podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to jump into all things growth, um, because that certainly is your background and experience set. Uh, Before we do that, though, it might be helpful for our audience to unpack your background a bit more. So you are SVP of product and growth at Malwarebytes. So tell us more about Malwarebytes and tell us more about that role at Malwarebytes. Sure. Malwarebytes is a cybersecurity company that has both consumer and corporate products. I run their consumer division, which is all self-service, all freemium, land and expand trajectory. So under my purview is both product design, marketing and growth teams. Got it. And prior to Malwarebytes, you spent seven and a half years at SurveyMonkey. And I know you had, I mean, that's a lot of time. You you wore a lot of hats while you were there. Maybe walk us through that journey of everything you did while you were at SurveyMonkey. I started at SurveyMonkey as a data analyst. After I've built out an analytics team in a couple of years, I decided as the company was expanding, there was a lot of opportunities to really dip your toe into a lot of different departments. I started with product marketing first, actually out of analytics. I very quickly realized after hiring a very good product marketer that that was not my strength. So I very quickly pivoted to product. I did some product management for onboarding and for pricing. But very quickly came around this concept of growth, which was probably six or so years ago. And the premise was just around at that point, LinkedIn, actually, we talked to LinkedIn and they started their first growth team. And it was all about experimentation. It's all about how do you optimize the customer journey to actually get the most out of the product for them? And how do you benefit as a business the most out of that experience as well? So it all really started just with A-B testing. Um, and that was defined to be a growth growth at SurveyMonkey. And then it very quickly started evolving into a lot bigger than that. We actually started taking over a couple of product teams, optimizing their experience, building up their infrastructure, making the journey for the customer very holistic, and then spitting them back into the core products. We also took over performance marketing towards the end. So that way, the entire journey of the customer outside of core features and core engagement was on growth, but some 
of the product teams would come in into growth team as well. So it's all the way from acquisition, SEM, SEO, website, onboarding into the customer, into the products such as customer name, customer password. How do you get them to understand what they came to do with the products? All of the pricing journeys, all of the renewals and all of the retention journeys in terms of all of the emails that you send out, all of the notifications that you send them about feature announcements, all about what they need to do with the product. And then we just did all of overall optimization of the entire funnel across starting from the website and further down all the way to the final activation moment at SurveyMonkey. So it evolved as the time went on and as we've proven our worth. Well, that definitely does sort of expand to encompass so many different things. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that journey as it started with A-B testing and then eventually became, you know, basically all things for the user journey and the customer journey and the life cycle. So uh, that's interesting. I think that's going to be a lot of what we impact during the episode here. So diving into SurveyMonkey a bit in a bit more detail. So I know that the business, it was founded back in 1999. So SurveyMonkey is not a new company. <laughs> and to me, I mean, I kind of view SurveyMonkey as potentially one of the first product led growth businesses. Is that true for SaaS at least? I would love to think so. Yes. <laughs> SurveyMonkey was definitely always focused on growth as it was developing its products, partly because when the company was acquired from the founders, the business was already flourishing. So we could really focus on how to get the most out of the product for both business and for customers. So the feature set was really very robust for self-serve. The product team did focus a lot on the enterprise features. So we really had an opportunity of a couple of years where we could truly focus on self-serve and optimize that journey to be this fine-tuned machine that just kept on giving both to users and to the business. And you joined there in 2009, correct? So when you first showed up, I've kind of been curious to understand how did SurveyMonkey describe their business back then? I mean, was it primarily we had this self-serve business or this bottoms-up business or how did they articulate this? Because it's B2B, right? I mean, it's more enterprise-oriented than it is consumer-oriented, but it doesn't have salespeople in the way that you know traditional B2B businesses do. So how did they articulate that model to the outside world back in 2009? Back in 2009, it was really viewed as a freemium subscription-based business. It was all self-serve, so we did talk about it self-serve, but we didn't talk about it as a B2B. B. We actually talked about it as a B2C because self-serve was synonymous with B2C and not B2B because B2B and back in 2009 was a lot more closely aligned with enterprise and sales. It's very a uh, couple of years in that we actually redefined it and said, well, we're not B2C because there is consumer usage of SurveyMonkey, but most of it has been businesses but of individual employees. So we started calling it B2C to B because you're talking to C's within the B, but it's still the final destination nation as it be. So we didn't talk about it truly as self-serve. We just talked about it as a freemium B2C model and B2C just implied that it was a self-serve. It's only afterwards that B2B started going into self-serve that it really started articulating that a lot better. But it didn't happen, I feel like, until about 2012 or so. And was that something that was confusing to others outside of the company? Or was it viewed in some way that it wasn't a real B2B business because there aren't salespeople? Or did people immediately grow? rock what this unique model was. 
No, we've definitely struggled with perception of this B2B business being completely self-serve. Everybody called us a consumer-grade company. We actually had to invest a lot into changing the branding perception to say we are for business. Serving Monkey is for business. But it took a long time to really get on board with that. And especially with the rise of Dropbox, Dropbox helped that perception a lot because Serving Monkey was one of those first businesses that were really highly penetrated in this corporate world that did not have a strong sales team like you said, and they started building it up. But that perception shift was actually very difficult. It had its own beautiful story to it because our cost of landing a customer was very low because everything was happening self-serve and everything was efficient and very highly optimized. But that perception in the market was a really uphill battle that we were dealing with. Yeah, and it's exactly that perception or some of this, you know, what's the right way to think about it type of questions that, you know, led us to be so excited about the concept of product-led growth because to put a term around it, to put some frameworks around it, to talk about some best practices so that it's not it's not a foreign concept, you know, I think that's super key. So that's certainly core to us here and makes a lot of sense. So for growth, for the growth team and for you as the growth leader at SurveyMonkey, you talked a bit about the impetus of seeing what LinkedIn had done with their growth team. What were you specifically thinking that you could affect or change or what kind of impact were you expecting to happen or to have with doing this A-B testing and some of these growth efforts? Great question. So I think the start of the growth team, which we've just done here at Malwarebytes as well, is really premised around you are at certain scale where optimizations can actually yield huge benefits to both your customers and businesses. Because when you're still trying to find product market fit, your whole time is consumed about just getting customers through the door and showing them the value of your product to even establish yourself in the marketplace. However, once you start getting hundreds of thousands of visitors to your website or through your product, all of a sudden one or two or even 5% improvement in activation or in pricing to checkout conversion yields in hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you can run a test in a week that all of a sudden pays out potentially half a million dollars over the course of the year. That's a no-brainer equation of the resources spent slash the output received. And while most of the product is fundamentally always geared at release schedules, they release a feature, and that's what they're incentivized to do to continue developing features and developing products. Growth team is incentivized of delivering lifts to the metrics. So you have this initial rise of metric-driven product and marketing approach, as opposed to feature delivery product and marketing approach as means to drive business growth and as means to drive customer user base. But again, to me, I've always fundamentally believed it only matters once you at a certain scale. Because if you're still trying to get those customers through the door, one or 2% improvement on the click-through rate on your main homepage might not mean anything to your business. But at the larger scale, it's also a very valuable addition to your bottom line and to the customers that you get through the door. So once you start getting into that right mix set where optimizations matter, optimizations are a big deal, it becomes a very lucrative leg of the product team or the marketing team to invest into. And when you first started doing those initial experiments that were more A-B testing oriented, when did you get the confidence that, hey, there's something here, this is working, and we should expand it beyond these initial A-B tests? 
great question. I would also say that the only way to even start and know which experiment to even run is you have to have a fairly solid analytics platform because you need to know how your customers are behaving to understand where you can improve the experience. Because if you don't understand how customers are proceeding through your flow, if you don't have your KPIs understood, if you don't know what actually drives the outcome of the revenue, you're going to be shotgunning all over the place. But if you have understood where your biggest drop-offs for the customers are, you can focus on those touch points and you can benchmark yourself against other products in the industry and figure out where you actually need to spend your efforts. So I would say that's actually step number one. And then once you actually get that win and you can show that you can bend the curve of any given KPI, and especially if that KPI becomes actually causation to the revenue or to the outcome of the bookings that you're hoping to drive, that's the big aha moment. But if you are shotgunning or if you're doing very small micro-optimizations that just yield almost neutral outcome, there will never be enough appetite to expand and double down the team. So data to me has always been the absolute foundational block to understand where we should even be focusing our efforts to get the biggest win to prove our worth so we can yield towards expansion. And what were some of those metrics that you cared most about? In freemium businesses, both SurveyMonkey and Malwarebytes that are subscription-based behind some feature walls, it's fairly playbook at this point. You have your traffic, which can be a vanity metric, but it's something that you obviously want to measure. Traffic is not something you can necessarily impact by experimentation, maybe by paid marketing or social, but it's still something that you can experiment with. And then you just go down the funnel. You talk about signups. How many signups or installs do you have? Then you have your activation moment. What is that aha moment? moment in your product that you want people to hit in order to understand the value of what you're trying to provide to them. That's the second step. Then you go into conversion. After people hit that aha moment, how many of them are actually paid to you? Whether it's a free trial like we have at Malwarebytes or it was a feature walls that we had at SurveyMonkey. So how many of them will then upgrade and pay for your product? And then it's retention. And retention is both engagement-based and paid, monetary-based. So engagement-based is how many people actually still come back to your product a month, two months from now. So what do your retention curves look like? On the paid front, it's more of a cohort-based retention. So how many people are still with you a year from now, a month from now, if you have monthly subscription? And do you create actual smile curves and retention by expanding on the customers that are staying with you? Or do you continuously lose value in the same velocity that you use your customers? To me, those are basically the core set of metrics that are our base levers that we're trying to pull. But underneath them, there is a slew of small metrics that we actually try to impact. Because what is activation? Activation is successful sign-up, is successful onboarding, is getting you through multiple steps in the product and getting you back to see the value. So there's different pieces that you have to be able to pull and test to see what has the biggest causation to activation, because you know activation will lead to conversion, for example. So it's a waterfall of metrics with bookings at the top, levers on the second lever, and then you go very heavy down into each individual KPI that you actually can impact and test its causation to a lever. I wanted to ask you about the viral loop, because I think that's one of the things, to me at least, if I just outside looking in, think about what propels such profitable growth historically at SurveyMonkey, it's that there's this inherent viral loop. The only reason you create a SurveyMonkey is to send it to somebody else, right? So by using the product, people discover the product. Was that something that you were on the growth team focused on optimizing and amplifying that viral loop? 
Right, so there's different types of viral loops. SurveyMonkey has a content viral loop because I create content in form of a survey and I send it out to people. Malwarebytes also has a viral loop. It's a reward of mouth viral loop. So anybody who's using Malwarebytes and uses Malwarebytes to fix their computer when it was infected by malware or viruses, they refer us to somebody else who has a similar problem. So those viral loops are actually key to accelerating growth, to compounding growth as opposed to linear growth growth. Because all of the other activities on most of the traditional marketing fronts are linear activities. You invest some money in or you invest certain efforts in and you get a user out of it. And only a certain percentage of traffic will convert to a user. Viral loops become extremely important as sustainable acquisition tactics for the business in order to actually drive accelerating growth. So once you get that user, that user refers you additional users from their network or from whoever that they distribute the content to or whoever they actually invited into your product. So if you can make your customers drive your acquisition, that's the best way of not having to have huge marketing budgets in order to maintain acquisition growth. And that becomes absolutely the key for organic, sustainable growth models that are compounding and accelerating as opposed to linear or flat. And back to the KPIs question. So when you're looking at the metrics, I know you said that starting point is having your KPIs there, knowing what matters most to your business, having a robust analytics package and probably an analytics team to support a lot of that work. That's all important. But below that, when you're looking at your KPIs, how do you prioritize and realize where there is opportunity to make improvement? Like, How would you pick what is the next test that we should run? That's a million dollar question. <laughs> a lot of it has to do with expertise and just seeing what is the usual sign up rate on the homepage? What is the usual activation rate in the freemium model versus in the trial? What is the conversion rate of the trial versus conversion rate of just true freemium without a trial? So you need to know some benchmarks and those are the ones that you can maybe get from some of the peers, not necessarily your competitors, but some of the similar models of the businesses. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is a guessing game. You have to know your business. You have to know the customers. You have to pull people together that understand the products and the journey and the customer. And you have to form hypotheses and you test them. The beauty and growth is that you have to over-index on learning as opposed to wins. Wins will come from learning. But if you just over-optimized on winning, you actually prevent some of the learning that growth teams fundamentally need to have in order to understand and how to accelerate your business better. So you form a hypothesis and you test and you really enable the team to fail because fail equals learning and learning equals you actually will know better your customer's behavior and how you can optimize that experience for them better next time around. So to me, there's no magic formula. It's just knowing your data, knowing your trends in the business, knowing the industry, knowing their SaaS or freemium companies or similar business model companies, talking to them and understanding where it's worth to invest your efforts. You want to also strike the balance of something that is actually going to make a difference, something that will be fairly easy to implement. Because if you're going to go and rock the world of changing your business model entirely, it might not even actually be worth it, or it might be just too infrastructurally difficult for your company to implement. So you have to pick your battles, but you get some great minds in the room and you make a decision as educated as possible with data being the biggest pillar to that decision. And then you test your hypotheses on top of it. 
Yeah, I think that experimentation framework of developing a hypothesis that's obviously informed by both your knowledge of your customer and of your business, by user interviews and more qualitative things like that, but then also by the data and the analytics, and then just creating that experimentation framework to develop hypotheses, prioritize hypotheses, test them, see what works, fail fast, kill things that aren't working, double down on things that are. I mean, that's what growth and product-led growth is really all about. So love hearing that. I'm curious to know, I also really liked what you'd said that you need to optimize for learning, not for wins. So on that, what are some of the wins after you applied this process? What are some of the big wins that you guys had? So at 30 Monkey, we had an amazing win when we went into try before you buy mode. So before the experience was you would come in, you would start creating a survey, and we had paid features. And then to engage with paid features, you had to pay for a plan. So we actually tested your ability to add paid features to your survey. We just prevented you from sending out a survey that had paid features. So you can continue sending it out it was all free only but if you add it pace you can try it before buying it and that actually was one of the biggest wins that I've ever had to this date in terms of our ability to improve conversion because all of a sudden people saw the value of a paid product we actually got them to a moment in paid plan as opposed to just free plan which is a big makes sense if I look at it back now because I'm like yes of course why wouldn't you let them try before they buy it it's the whole premise of a trial but it was unconventional type of trial because you didn't actually just get unlimited access to the entire paid plan. But at the time, it was a really big change in terms of how we thought of monetization and it yielded in double-digit improvements in the conversion rate, which was huge for us. And that was one of the biggest solidifications of growth team after which it started expanding. But we had a lot of losses in the meantime. We had a lot of pricing page experiments that didn't do anything. We tried to do a lot on the homepage. It didn't do anything from changing it very drastically to changing colors, all of the visuals, all of the buttons removing the flows. So it was getting to that point of, okay, we need to do something big and we've learned of what actually matters and doesn't matter to our user base because we now understand coming through these flows. And that led us to ability to take that bigger bet on our user base. And I want to shift gears a bit to talk about how the growth team works with other teams inside the organization. So how did the growth team, when you're at SurveyMonkey and then now at Malwarebytes, how does the growth side work with the product team? The best way I can probably describe it is relationship status is very complicated <laughs> because you know, fundamentally in a lot of companies incentivized very differently. A growth team, you incentivize on improving a metric. On a product team, you're incentivized on releasing something. And that's the outcome that you strive towards. So when you have that tension, you have a very hard time prioritizing of what is actually going to be engineered. What is actually do we need to develop for production-ready tests? or experiment versus what we can hack and do very dirty read in terms of how customers are interacting with a certain feature or a certain flow. So I'd say there's a lot of communication. There's a lot of talking that you need to do. There's a lot of aligning behind the goal and really alignment of the teams. And a lot of the growth is selling growth concepts within the company. Because fundamentally, most people 
they have never been in a company a lot of times that had growth teams. So they don't even understand what growth team is. Is growth team the only team that is responsible for growth of the company? What is my role in the company then? But once you actually starting to champion of, I will help you grow your product. I will help you drive your feature adoption. I will help you monetize it better. And I will help us get the most out of what we do every single day. Then it becomes an aligned mission. But to me, that championship is very important. But if you just create a growth team that is sitting on its own island and you give them the entire purview to say you can go and do whatever you want it creates a lot of territories and it creates a lot of conflicts because growth team fundamentally is supposed to challenge existing concepts and existing beliefs but existing concepts and beliefs were developed for a reason so without an alignment of the product owner that owns those concepts it's almost impossible to get even the biggest win adopted at the end of the day by that team because for them it was all wrong in terms of how it came about. So it's a lot of communication. It really is. It's a lot of alignment. It's a lot of showing value how you cannot just release a product, but you can actually drive so much customer benefit and so much business benefit of it. But it takes iteration. We never get it right from the first time. It's okay because we learn and we improve and then we become something that is a lot more aligned behind delivering value on both fronts. And what about sales and marketing? How does growth work with sales and marketing? It's actually very interesting because when you say growth, to half the companies, it means growth marketing. To half the companies, it means growth products. To very few companies, it means both growth marketing and product. So a lot of growth teams actually start in marketing, which is growth marketing in terms of how do you hack your acquisition flow? How do you actually optimize and how do you test of driving acquisition into your product? Because going into product-led growth is a lot more difficult because then you're changing product experience as opposed to just acquiring customers, which is also a very difficult feat, but it's more happening outside of the product. So I think it's something that we have to all think about it as a customer. Customer interacts with your acquisition strategies and your product strategy. I'm a firm believer that it has to span both so we can deliver cohesive experience. So even if you have your marketing team and you have your product team, have growth team overlap that. So they focus on the user. They're not focused on the team. So that way they're optimized for the user. They don't optimize optimized for a specific department. But growth marketing is for consumer businesses is a fairly established concept. Growth hacking for B2B, especially enterprise businesses, is a lot earlier on, I feel, compared to consumer. And a lot of it has to do with longer sales cycle, longer time to understand what you're actually doing, what impact does it have to the business, how many funnel stops there are between when you make a growth marketing attempt on an enterprise business to the closed one deal because it has to go through the sales team, through the demo, through the PO process. So there's so many final steps that you're actually not in control of that it becomes very difficult. However, I've seen some very successful start, start a very successful growth hacking teams in an enterprise space as well, where they're thinking about it a lot more in a data quantitative way in terms of how to drive acquisition and how to become creative in your acquiring of your customers as opposed to traditional enterprise marketing teams, which is very exciting. I think that's the way to go. And that's the way a lot of it actually brings self-serve to the table at the end of the day, because that's optimizing acquisition and it's reducing your cost of acquisition. So it's very fascinating transition that the enterprise teams are going through. 
And then the last one is customer success. I was thinking about it when you were talking about the metrics and the KPIs. Some of the ones that you highlighted were things like activation and conversion, which starts to touch into onboarding of a user or of a customer and account. And then also retention, you know, at the back end, looking at the cohorts, looking at things like that. Those are oftentimes in B2B metrics that customer success thinks about or, or oftentimes owns. So in the product-led growth context, what is the relationship and the collaboration between customer success and growth? I firmly believe that we're entering the age where we have to deliver consumer-grade products to enterprises with enterprise-grade functionality. So consumer-like usability, which is very easy to do activation, to do utilization, to do retention, it has to be led by products. And the efficiencies of scale come where you actually can direct your customer success team on the accounts that truly need help or really towards large accounts that have a lot of barriers of entry that product is not able to solve. But how do you still put a lot of the burden on product to deliver that experience in such a seamless way, in the breakthrough way, in innovative way, where it becomes easy for the customer so they don't have to engage with your customer success team every single time? Because at the large scale, you don't want to have to rely on people to solve your product problems. You still want to rely on product to solve your problems. And that's a lot harder in some industries. For cybersecurity, for example, to activate a customer, it's a lot of steps. It's not easy. It's not just a click of a button. You have to deploy it across all of your company endpoints. And that requires a lot of effort on the other side of the security team to do so. So there has to be a customer success and support team involved in helping that process. But how do you get at least to initial onboarding in a moment as in self-serve way as possible to me is the key. So I like to put pressure back on the product to say, how do you solve it with UX and UI? And how do you solve it with very high usability interfaces as opposed to having support team and success team really focus on the customers that truly need it. And then last question that I have here is for folks that I talk to, I talk to a lot of founders who aspire to start a growth team or think that their company should have a growth team, but they don't really know where to begin. So what advice do you have for someone who's about to start out on this process and figure out if it's right for their company or not? My biggest advice, uh, twofold. The one, actually, know your data. Make sure that you have a focus on the data-driven culture in the company. Because if you don't even have a data for a growth hacker to look at, they will not be able to make good decisions and good hypotheses and understand where their efforts should be focused. So data focus is step number one. Data cleanliness, data hygiene as much as possible. But step number two, I'd actually say that the best growth that I've seen came from teams like FPNA or engineers or product management, or even analytics, or even marketing, because those are the people that can really connect business outcomes to customer journeys and think about how customer journey can yield to increased business outcome. And a lot of times, testing it internally with giving somebody ability to just run a few tests or to experiment on certain parts of the funnel can yield you more than starting an official growth team. So I would just test your ability to even be able to execute on A-B test, knowing how to be able to track that A-B test, understanding, are you in the right direction in terms of where the hypotheses you should have of where growth can come from in your business, and then go and hire your growth team, and then go and start your growth team. But a lot of it can start very naturally, and the more naturally and organically it starts within your company, the better it will be adopted, as opposed to parachuting somebody in, dropping them, and saying, now you go do growth, and everybody else 
else continue on to their business. So I think it's very important that introduction is as seamless as possible in that everybody's bought into that concept that this is something at the scale of the company is worth investing into. Otherwise, it just goes haywire in terms of competition and lack of collaboration, which is something that you absolutely want to avoid. The importance of being set up for success and making sure that you're laying the right groundwork and that you are culturally also ready to embrace this and go all in, right? Because you want to make sure to give enough time and resource and space and attention to this to make it successful. Right. They have to have some engineering resources. They have to have the buy-in on the roadmap where a certain percentage of the roadmap is then designated efforts. Most importantly, the CEO has to buy into the concept. Executive team has to buy into the concept because without overall alignment of what this is actually going to accomplish for the organization, you're setting that team up for just spinning wheels and potentially running tests that are changing colors on the buttons or changing small tweaks that actually don't do any fundamental impact to your bottom line. Well, Elena, this has been incredibly helpful. I feel like this is a masterclass on product-led growth. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of these experiences and this wisdom with us. This has been great. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com slash newsletter. See you next time.